It's great. That's exciting because you, how many can see a new generation coming? Anybody see that? And that's important. That's how the church perpetuates itself through all generations. All right, I'm going to have you stand as we're going to go to the Lord in prayer. We're going back to the book of Proverbs this morning, all right? Yeah, we're back to our series right now. And let's pray that God's Spirit would do a mighty work. We're looking at this wisdom literature, and I'm hoping that God's going to leave a deposit inside of your hearts today. You're going to walk in wisdom. You're going to live in wisdom. Lord, that's my prayer. And Father, we know that in this world, there are many pitfalls and snares and traps. And I love that beautiful hymn, Amazing Grace. And John Newton says that, through many dangers, toils, and snares, we have already come. Lord, I pray, deliver us from evil. Lead us not into temptation. Lord, Help us to know your path, the right path that leads to life. Help us to avoid all of the broad road of destruction that would endeavor to ensnare our souls and to entrap us many times in what looks right but is really a golden cage, but it doesn't bring freedom. I pray today, Lord, that you would set us free, that you would so transform our hearts and minds today that our desires would line up with yours And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Yes, thank you. Middle school, please slip out. Join your middle school teacher. All right. And, And then after the service, if you're a guest with us, please stop by the guest information area. They have something for you, okay? Gordon McDonald uh, wrote a book many, many years ago called Ordering Your Private World. And he was sharing in this book the struggles of a business leader before he surrendered his life to Christ. And he was trying to reorder his priorities. And as you're going to hear in a moment, his whole life was out of whack. I mean, his priorities were wrong. And as he shares it himself, he said, several years ago, I was at a point of great frustration in my life. This is his own words, his own story. Although I had a wonderful wife and three beautiful sons, my career was going terribly. I had few friends. My oldest son began getting into trouble, started failing in school. I was suffering from depression. There was great tension and unhappiness in our family. And at that time, I had an opportunity to travel overseas and where I stayed to work in a foreign company. This new opportunity was such an excellent one financially and career-wise that I made it my number one priority in life, forsaking all other values. I did many wrong things, actually sinful things, to advance my position and success, and I justified them as being of good consequence to my family, you know, things like making more money, resulting in my lying to myself and my family and behaving in many wrong ways. Of course, this was intolerable to my wife, and she and my family returned to the U.S., but I was still blind to the problems that were within me. My success, my salary, my career all moved me upwards. I was actually caught in a golden cage. Although many wonderful things were happening outside of me, inside, I was losing everything. My capacity to reason, my capacity to make good decisions were weakened. I would evaluate alternatives, constantly going to various options and always trying to pick the one that would maximize my success in my career. I knew in my heart that something was terribly wrong, 
Yes, I went to church, but the words weren't reaching me. I was too caught up in my own little world. And after a terrible episode with my family several weeks ago, I completely gave up my course of thinking, went to a hotel room for nine days to figure out what I needed to do. I began to realize how dead I really was, how so much of my life was dark. And worse than that, I could see no way out of the situation I was in. My only solution in my mind was to run and hide and to start in a different place and sever all connections. This brutal description of the, this man on the bottom fortunately has a happy ending. How many like happy endings? You know, it's good. Let's finish on a positive note. For not long after his nine-day experience in his hotel room, he discovered the amazing, forgiving love of God and its capacity to engender change in his life. And he moved from being driven by the wrong things, having a desire for the wrong things, to literally having a change of heart and beginning to desire the things that make for real living. He was now released from his golden cage. You know, the question I want to raise today is, what are we giving our energies to? What is it that we really desire in this life? Almost, you know, I, I'm, we're reading a book as these younger pastors and myself were meeting, and we're talking about a book called Inside Out. We're talking about the motivations that are below our consciousness. Actually, the, the things that are really driving our lives, those passions that fuel us, those desires that we long for, what's really moving us to do these things that we do? So we need discernment to actually make wise choices with the investment of our lives. Here in Proverbs chapter 23, I'm going to have you turn there if you have your Bibles. We find a group of Proverbs entitled 30 Wise Sayings. This is all part of chapter 23. It starts in chapter 22, verse 17, goes into chapter 24. And so we're going to look at a number of these things, and I think that these are things in our lives that we have to really... Um, bring about a measure of, of discipline into our lives in order to walk in freedom. As a matter of fact, we, we, we really are, whatever we give our life to, let me say it that way, whatever we give our life to will determine the kind of life we live. How many know that's true? Whatever we're giving ourselves to. And, uh, and so I'm going to look at two aspects of wisdom living that you and I need to develop in our lives. And the first one is simply self-restraint in the critical areas of life. How many know that's true? Uh, you, 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 I know our culture today, we're really, we really believe that we can do anything we want. That's what we're being told. Isn't that what the messaging of society is today? You know, do your own thing. Go for it. Enjoy life to the fullest. But what people don't realize is, you know, a lot of times when we do our own things, it leads to bondage. I think it's one of the greatest lies in life is that freedom means doing what we want. But if you follow that to its logical conclusion, as I wrote there, the result is always bondage. It always leads you into captivity. It leads you, as I, this message is entitled, into a golden cage. You, you think you're getting what you want, and when you get there, you realize, this isn't what I wanted at all. You know, this is leading to emptiness in my life. You know, what we're about to see are the things that try and control us. And there's many things in this life that try and control us. Money tries to control us. How about sex, drugs, alcohol, food? We can just go down the list naming all kinds of things that are trying to take control of our lives. And we're going to talk about the importance of literally uh, the freedom not to be controlled by any of our own 
what I call our natural human appetites. I think the wisdom literature teaches us that we shouldn't crave that which ultimately perishes. Okay? That's not where our desire should be. And I'll tell you why that's true. Because you and I are not designed to just live in the moment. You and I are not just designed for that which perishes and that which is temporal. You and I are designed by God as an eternal person designed for eternity. And so whatever we have for a desire, it needs to be bigger and better than what the culture is shoving in our face every single day. We need, we need to have a longing and an aspiration and a desire for something so much greater, something eternal. And we're going to see that in these first few Proverbs, that we're warned against desiring the momentary at the expense of the eternal. We need to understand the importance of restraint, and, you know, deferred gratifications. They've done a lot of studies with children. You know, people who can defer gratification usually end up being very successful in life. So I think it's even deeper than that. I think we have to displace the wrong desires and priorities in our lives with the right ones. How's that? You know, it's, it's not enough just to say, oh, I, got, I, I, just, you know, I just can't do this bad thing or I just can't do this thing that, you know. And usually when we are wrestling and fighting against things, we usually fall into it anyways. How many kind of notice that? I think what needs to happen is something far more profound than just resisting. I think we need to have a displacement of the wrong desires and actually have God do such a profound work in our hearts that he actually creates the right desires in us so that we, like the Apostle Paul, can say, you know, that it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. He so changes our hearts. He changes our passions. He changes our desires so we start to love the things that God loves and even starts to hate the things that God hates. And those are the things that actually bring life and freedom into our lives. Paul Coptic writes, the sages of Proverbs insist that the pursuit of good but transitory things like food and money makes a poor goal for life. We must constantly remind ourselves that the wisdom of Proverbs is primarily about managing our desires. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, it is the truth. Let's take a look at Proverbs 23, verse 1. When you sit down to dine with a ruler, note well what is before you. And put a knife to your throat if you're given to gluttony. What does that really mean? Well, verse three, do not crave his delicacies for that food is deceptive. Does that mean it's not what you see? No, I think it's more significant than that. What is he saying here? Obviously, these verses are tied to the previous verses in chapter 22. See, there is a context to this. In verse 22, at the end of that chapter, he talks about someone who's skillful in his work sitting before those as rulers. In other words, your gift brings you to that place where you're brought into the place, you're kind of elevated because of what you're doing. And this means that we end up engaging with people that are in leadership roles in many ways, and one of them is actually socially. So what has table manners then to do with being in the presence of influential people? You know, I think people are making assessments about our character based on how we handle social situations. How many go, that's true. People, you know, you say, well, people don't judge. Folks, come on, that's nonsense. People are judging all the time. And everyone goes, well, that's wrong to judge. No, it's wrong to attribute motivations 
to people. It's wrong to, you know, try to tell you what, why people are doing what they're doing. We don't always know what their motivations are. That's wrong. But people are making assessments on our behavior all the time. The way we talk, the way we dress, the way we eat, all of those things. The way we spend our money, the way we give, the way we don't give. I mean, go on and on and on. Our behavior is constantly being assessed. Let's be f- realistic about that. Probably one of the most significant expressions of social engagement is eating together. It's really powerful. Tremper Longman says, it may seem uh, uh, like a banal thing. I keep saying that word wrong, but, but dining, is, uh, dining is actually an opportunity for people to manifest a type of self-control that demonstrates wisdom, okay? Think about it. Just as the wise are to control their emotional expressions and the frequency and content of their speech, so also they must not let their appetites get control of them. So what is he saying here? Wise people think before they say. Wise people don't respond. You know, you know a lot of times people say or do things, and you know, wisdom says don't overreact to things. Matter of fact, I would say you and I need to learn how to respond to things, not react to things. How many here go, you know, sometimes I struggle a little bit with reaction. Sometimes I tend to overreact to what's happening. That's a lack of wisdom. Wisdom says, no, I got to train myself to be a little more self-restrained in that and to consider what's going on here. And same thing here with food. That's what he's talking about. The rich do not always give away... Uh, Their favors for free, Dwayne Garrett writes. They want something in return, and it is generally much more than what they've invested. One can lose one's soul in the exchange. So uh, what he's basically saying is that we have to be careful when we're, when we're with people. Like, you know, and I think most of us are learning this over time is, you know, what strings are attached to what's being offered. Isn't that true? And I think we have to just kind of sit down and go, okay, Sometimes when things are being offered, it can't be too good to be true. Not, not always. I mean, there are generous people out there. There are people who have no motivation but to be a blessing and a help. But how many have also discovered in life, there's a lot of other people out there, they have a string attached to whatever they're doing. And you kind of learn that, right? And then there's this expression of putting a knife to our throats. What's he mean by that? He's just meaning restrain yourself when you're going to sit down and... Uh, have a meal, he says. You know, basically, if I was going to use our vernacular, you don't pig out in front of people you don't know. That's not the place to do that kind of thing, right? You got to have a little more restraint than that. And you go, well, why would you have to have a little restraint there? Because the person there is actually evaluating. Leaders have a tendency to evaluate people at a different level than most people do. And I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. You know, when I was... uh, learning to be a Christian leader, one of my mentors said to me, and I've never forgotten his words because, you know, I'm trying to learn how to be a leader. And you learn by listening to wise people. You learn by being mentored by people that know what they're doing. And he said, every person you meet is actually a job interview. It's a very interesting way of looking at life. So you say, what do you mean by that? Because you see, when you're a leader, and, and leaders are always trying to, you know, build teams, develop organizations, move things forward. The hardest thing you have to do is find the right kind of people to have work around you. How many here are, you're a business owner. Anybody here a business owner? How many know that basically the staff you have represent you? And if you have very good staff, 
they'll represent you well. And if you have staff that are not so good, they represent you poorly. Isn't that true? And so you always want the best people because you know, you're, really, you're really only as good as the people that are around you. That's true in an organization. And so if you're a leader, you're looking for the, the, the quality people. You're looking for the top people, the best people. You say, is that wrong? No, it's not wrong. Actually, it's interesting. You know, Jesus, when he was picking the 12, some of us would say, well, I probably wouldn't, most CEOs probably wouldn't have picked them. But you see, Jesus had one little advantage. He went to the Father, and we're talking about character. How many know that character is even more important than competency? Now, you, you know, you want both. How many say you want both? Of course you want both. But I'm going to say if I have to have a higher level of one or the other, always pick character. Always pick character. Character is the most important commodity in every person's life. So when you're meeting people, you know, you're discovering what kind of a character you're, this person has. And then you start to discover this person is thoughtful. This person is centered on others. This person is generous. This person... Uh, is humble. This, you know what I mean? You're learning things about people. Then you're saying, these are the kind of people I want to have around my life. These are the kind of people I want to have in my organization. These are all important ideas. And so you keep this in mind because sometimes in the future, you may have a need in your organization. Your, your mind will go back. The Holy Spirit will bring people back to your mind. You have a little file there and you go, remember that person. Remember what they were like. That's, an, that's the, actually the kind of person we need right now in our organization. So let me tell you something. You're, you don't know this, but we're always, you know, being evaluated. That's the way that life works. A lot of us don't think that way, but it's the truth. Here's another area where restraint is needed. In the realm of acquiring wealth, listen to what it says in verse uh, four and five. It says, do not wear yourself out to get rich. Do not trust in your own cleverness. That's interesting. Do you think there's a lot of people in North America that are wearing themselves out to get rich? How many say that's probably true? You know, they're just pouring in the hours, but it says don't do that. And don't even trust your own cleverness. You know, time and chance happens to them all. If you talk to some of the very wealthy people, you know what they'll tell you? It wasn't because they were so smart. You know, if they tell you that, it's not true. A lot of times it's time and chance. God just, they were in the right place at the right time. You need to understand that too. So he goes on, cast but a glance at riches and they are gone for they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. You know what he's basically saying? Don't give your heart and energy what can so easily mislead and leave you. You see, don't pour your life there. That's not the goal of life. It's not about getting rich. If you acquire wealth in the process of what God's called you to, that's a, that's a different thing. That's a byproduct. Don't make it the goal. That's what they're saying. We need to give our lives to something that in the end promises so much more because you know riches promise so much, but they deliver so little. And you heard the story of the businessman. He was making a lot of money, but he was losing his own family. You know, And one of the great tragedies in North America is that we're all caught in a golden cage. We've had so much affluence, but it's so diminished us as human beings in this culture. Paul Coptic points out, craving after the deceits of luxurious food and riches is still with us, though in different forms. For us, the riches do not always fly away, but the satisfaction that they're supposed to bring does. David Meyer says, the soaring wealth and shrinking spirit. This is an American paradox. He's an American writing about this, but I think it's equally true of Canadians. More than ever, we have big houses and broken homes. How many say that's true? You know what? When I grew up, 
we had bigger families and smaller houses, most people stuck, stayed together. Somehow they worked it out. You know, I remember having six of us with one bathroom. Today, that would be a no-no, right? We can't hardly function, you know? It was a little tough at times. I have to admit, I had a sister. I love her very dearly, but you'd have to beat her in there in the mornings. You know, high incomes and low morales. In an age of plenty, we feel spiritually hungry. Isn't that the truth? Isn't that kind of where we're living? Of course it is. It's interesting that we're warned against wearing ourselves or giving our lives away for something that's not enduring and eternal. Notice the introduction of the eyes are mentioned in verse 5. Cast but a glance. This speaks of the gateway to desire. Our eyes are many times the gateway to our desires. We need to watch what we desire for because what we desire for leads us down a path that is ultimately leading to a destiny. Proverbs 23, 6 to 8 says, we have comments here about restraint when dining with a stingy person that they're always focused on the cost of what they're doing. It says, do not eat the food of a begrudging host nor crave his delicacies, for he's the kind of person who's always thinking about the cost. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. You will vomit up the little you've eaten and will have wasted your comments. Here in this third vignette, in which the character of the host is described as stingy in the NIV. In the King James, he says he have an evil eye. That's literally the Hebrew words, evil eye. It's translated for us as stingy. And the reason it's done that is because in Proverbs 28, 22, it says the stingy are eager to get rich and are unaware that poverty awaits them. This is their motivation. That's why they're stingy. They're greedy. They want more. And so if they're giving you something, it's always with strings attached. That's what you need to know. This is in contrast to the person who has a good eye, not an evil eye, but a good eye, which means he has a generous spirit. In chapter 22, verse 9, it says, the generous will themselves be blessed, for they share their food with the poor. Now, I'm going to ask a question. When you think of the nature of God, you think of God as being stingy or generous? Yeah, he's generous. He's the most generous person I know. So, if I act generously towards people, who am I acting like? I'm behaving like God. Isn't that a neat thought? So you and I can be God-like when we share with other people. We want to be generous. And you know, it's amazing what happens when you start being generous. Now, it says if we're going to be sparingly, it must be done in the area, not so much in our giving, but in our words. That's where we need to practice a little more self-restraint. How many think that's probably true? You know, James tells you. James is a wisdom teacher. He says, be slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to get angry. How many go, that's kind of hard to do? You know what I'm kind of noticing right now as we're moving towards all kinds of things in our culture today? People are not slow to speak. I see them quick to speak, slow to listen, and quick to get angry. It's the very opposite of what James is telling us to do. And take a look what happens here in chapter uh, 23, verse 9. Do not speak to fools where they will scorn your prudent words. Hmm, interesting. Now, why is he telling us that? Well, in the previous verse, we've, we've seen wasting words or compliments on the stingy host. Now, we're going to be taught here to watch what we say to people. Now, I want you to think about this. You know, immediately that comes to mind is Jesus. He's the ultimate person of wisdom, right? And so what does he tell us in Matthew on the Sermon on the Mount? He says this, do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. 
Let's go back to verse 9. Do not speak to fools. They will scorn your prudent words. What is Jesus doing? He's re- reiterating or reemphasizing this proverb, is he not? But I want to tell you what context he's speaking it in. Because I was thinking about those words of Jesus, but then I started looking at his context. And the context is when Jesus is saying, judge not lest you be judged. And then he goes on to talk about taking the plank out of your brother's eye, when the, I mean a speck out of your brother's eye when there's a plank in your own eye. Then he says this, these words. He's speaking it in the context of correction. Now here's what, what we're really getting down to. The idea is simply this, that this Proverbs, according to Dr. Walke, is simply that the son or daughter must take the spiritual measure of a person before responding to them in order to estimate beforehand the effect of their words on that individual. And especially in the area of correction. How many know when you're correcting people, it's a very difficult thing to do? And many times, when you correct a person when they're wrong, they don't always respond well. Isn't that true? How many know that is true? Some people get indignant, upset, angry, frustrated, all kinds of stuff. And yet, you know, when we're a wise person, Instead of defending ourselves, maybe we have to listen to what someone's saying to us because as we're going to find out, correction is actually an act of love. Let me take a look at the 11th saying here, which is found in chapter 23, verse 10. There's 30 sayings. And so he's calling for a restraint in enriching ourselves at the expense of others. Before he was saying, don't wear yourself going after riches. Now he says, especially when you take advantage of other people, because usually when you try to wear yourself getting rich, many times you end up doing things you shouldn't be doing, just like that businessman did in my opening illustration. He says, do not move an ancient boundary stone or encroach on the field of the fatherless for their defenders strong and you'll take up their case against you. I think uh, it's important that we recognize that God will become our adversary if we're taking advantage of other people. How many want to be fighting with God? I'm going to take a hard pass on that. I don't want to be fighting God. I want to be, you know, with God. I want to be on his side, not on the opposite side. And then I think that there's uh, an area in our life that uh, we need to learn about uh, some areas of of not restraining. Let's take a look at this. Proverbs 23.13 says, Do not withhold discipline from a child, If you punish them with the rod, they will not die. Punish them with the rod and save them from death. Now, wow, this is very interesting. I think one of the areas we need to learn restraint is being indulgent toward our children. It's going to get real quiet in here. I I think we're living in a culture today that's confused regarding the nature and value of discipline. I'm serious about this. And the reason we are is because there's been much misuse and abuse of discipline, and therefore we've gone the other way and we've neglected it. And what happens is the scriptures teach a balanced approach. Now think about it. Discipline is actually an act of love. Correction is an act of love. You say, what do you mean? It's actually in our minds what we're trying to do for the benefit of another person. How many go, I really enjoy disciplining people? Any parent here goes, oh, I really love doing this. Of course not. No, nobody in their right mind enjoys correcting people or disciplining people. I don't enjoy doing it. But I will do it if I have to because I know it's necessary for the good of the other person. I think this is one of the great problems of our current time in our society. We're overindulgent parents and we're spoiling our children, causing them to develop an entitlement mentality. It's true. Come on. It's getting real quiet in here, I know. 
I think we've helped fashion self-centered children, and we've actually ruined them for their future because now, you know, they're going to have problems in their relationships with other people. Now, the idea here that he's saying is save them from their death, it's not physical death here. It's talking about this idea of a separation from God. Uh, Harry Einstein gives us great insight. He says, regarding this issue of abuse and neglect, he says, discipline uh, administered seasonably, not in harshness or undue severity, is for the profit of the child. In this way, by means of present suffering, he will be preserved. That means the child will be preserved from the ruin and wretchedness that are bound to follow a life of self-seeking and unsubdued, perverse will. Sheol is not exactly hell, and the world of spirits here used as to that which a vicious life will soon lead. Chastisement will correct those evil tendencies. Now, we need to know that these two texts don't advocate abuses because we read the next two verses, which are verses 15 and 16. My son, if your heart is wise, then my heart will be glad. It's a father talking to his child. Hey, if you do the right thing, I'm rejoicing. And if you do the wrong thing, it breaks my heart. That's what he's saying here. My innermost being will rejoice when your lips speak what is right. The goal is to see wisdom expressed in the lives of our children. Here's here's the goal. You're a parent. First of all, your children are not your own. They're God's. You've been given uh, an administration. You've been given a stewardship. You're helping raise these children so that they will grow up to become healthy, functioning, unselfish, caring, loving, sacrificial, general, generous human beings. Isn't that kind of the goal? We want them to be like God. We want them to be great. We want them to succeed in life, and that's how they succeed. You know, I was reading Mere Christianity this past week, and C.S. Lewis, I said to my wife, I said, I think I got a new mentor here. You know, I quote him a lot, but man, you know, Lewis is pretty insightful. He shares so many good thoughts, and he's talking about the nature of charity. And in his mind, the word charity means love. Faith, hope, and charity, or faith, hope, and love. And he's talking about love here. And he says, on the other hand, it is also necessary to keep a very sharp lookout for fear our liking for someone makes us unloving or uncharitable or even unfair to someone else. Now, you know, he's basically talking about you need to start learning how to like everybody. And some people you'll like more than others. Come on, let's be honest. But he says, if you practice liking, if you practice doing good to people, eventually your emotions catch up to you and you will start liking people more. You'll actually have a greater heart. Your heart will widen. You'll care about more people. But he said, there is one danger. Here's the danger. It's a very unusual danger. He says, there are even cases where our liking conflicts with our love towards the person we like. Excuse me, CS? You know, Clive, what are you talking about here? He says, for example, a doting mother may be tempted by her natural affection to spoil her child, that is to gratify her own affectionate impulses at the expense of the child's real happiness later on. What's he he saying? You know, you and I can just pamper our children to such a degree that we don't actually help them develop and have the right kind of character. So when they grow up to be adults, they become self-centered, selfish, you know, human beings. And guess what happens then? You've actually affected their, their happiness in the future, and they're going to make other people's lives around them miserable because they're so self-centered. Now, you, you think you've done a good job, and you've actually done a terrible job. And it's just because 
You've, you've showed the wrong kind of a thing. See, in other words, by not disciplining wrong behavior, we don't curb sinful behavior that costs that child in the future. If we don't correct those we love, it produces you know, unresolved issues in their life. It destroys their ability to get along with others and causes misery to themselves and others. You know, no wonder God disciplines each of us as his children. Listen to what he says here in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11. My son, don't despise the Lord's discipline. Don't resent his rebukes. Hey, if God's rebuking you, say, oh, thank you, Lord. I needed to hear that. You know, how many here you go, oh, I really get excited when God corrects me? Or do most of us moan and groan and go, why are you doing that to me, Lord? You know. Because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son, he delights him. Let me move on to a couple of other areas that we need to exercise restraint. We've seen that we are to restrain our desires to enrich ourselves, particularly at the expense of what is best for us and others. We cannot let our hearts become envious of those who are sinning against the Lord. And here we see the power of wrong association. Here's another big area. I mean, you know, I, I, I try to get this across to us. The people we spend time with will shape our lives. Verse 17, do not let your heart envy sinners, but always be zealous for the fear of the Lord. You know, now we're talking about motivating. We're talking about what motivates. We're talking about passion. We're talking about desire. A zeal. Zeal is actually fervency for the fear of God. We need to have the right desires and the right aspirations in our life. So what is it we desire? What's motivating our decisions? An envy of sinners or a desire to please God. Which is it? You know, will we live to serve God? But when we do that, here's what happens in the very next verse. There's surely a future hope for you, and your hope will not be cut off. See, when you do what God wants you to do, there's hope. There's always hope with God. Consider back to the person who places hope in uncertain riches. They're flying away. Isn't that true? Of course. How many people achieve what they set out to do, you know? And then they find out, okay, I got there, but then I, I realize this is terrible. I don't feel, I, you know, I really thought when I climbed the top of the mountain, I'd feel a certain way, and all I feel is emptiness. You see, that's how that businessman found out. He became trapped in a golden cage. You know, so many people in this culture today are pursuing the wrong goals that when they get there, they're so empty. There's such a lack of real satisfaction in life. What am I trying to tell us this morning? Make sure you've got the right destination in mind. Make sure you're pursuing after the right thing. Make sure you have the right goals in mind. Make sure you have the right heart desire for the right things. The final warning on the chapter concludes on those who are pursuing the wrong path. He says, listen, my son, and be wise, and keep your heart on the right path. Notice the word. I want you to pick up this word. Keep your what? Your heart. That's the essence of who you are. That's you know, your, your mind, soul, and will, your emotions, all those things. Do not join those who drink too much wine or gorge themselves on meat. Oh, for drunkards and gluttons become poor and drowsiness clothes them in rags. Now we're still back to this association thing, are we not? Who we choose to associate with will affect our values. Real, real simple. Listen to Paul Comtag, he, he, he writes this. Thus the very first instruction of Proverbs insists that one chooses one's life by choosing one's associates. Go back to chapter 1, verse 10. He says, my son, don't join the gang. My son, don't go with those guys who are telling you this is the way to life. This is the way to succeed in life. We're just going to rob, rip off people. He said, don't go down that path. 
They're actually going down a path that's going to destroy themselves. The principle here is not avoiding all those we might call sinners. After all, we're sinners too. But rather refusing to join them in their goals or the paths on which they're walking to reach them. The point is not to reject people, but the ways those people are representing. Today we need godly wisdom to figure out the subtle straying paths we must reject. And then we get to the conclusion of the chapter, which is really interesting. You know, he says here, this is quite uh, poetic. He kind of describes the folly of addictions. And this is, of course, a picture of somebody's battling alcohol, right? Who has woe? Who has sorrows? What's the answer? Who has strife? Who has complaints? Who has needless bruise? Who has bloodshot eyes? He's giving you six things that are a result of, you know, a person who is abusing alcohol. Those who linger over wine, who go to the sample bowls of mixed wine, who go to the sample bowls of mixed wine, do not gaze at wine when it's red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a snake and poisons like a viper. He says, look, you don't need to go down this path. And you know, it's so amazing to me. You know, I grew up in, in, in the time in the church when people said, you know, they were just discouraging people from drinking at all. Today, you know, we're all social drinkers. Everybody's doing their things. But a lot of people move past social drinking into abusing alcohol. And I wonder sometimes how many people in this culture right now in the midst of COVID are actually trying to address the pressures and problems of COVID with alcohol abuse. I wonder sometimes. I wonder how many people think it's okay to you know, take marijuana and drugs that are now being legalized by the government because you know, hey, it's legal, isn't it? But that doesn't make it right. You know, We have a lot of things in our country that are legal but are not morally right. As a matter of fact, if you were here Tuesday night, I kind of went down and had a time of confession that it went over the Ten Commandments and basically said when, when civilizations, when countries, when, when people in different times begin to violate God's moral code, that culture is actually deteriorating from the inside and eventually it'll stumble and fall and, and crash to the ground. And every civilization in, in mankind is all crumbled. And how did it happen? It all comes from within, folks. Yeah, eventually an army comes and defeats them, but they wouldn't have if they had not been eroding and corrupting from within. And folks, we're living in a culture like that today. And I'm just trying to give us wisdom. I'm trying to explain to you, there's two paths here. You got to choose the right path. And that's why we get so faked out sometimes. He goes on and talks about, I'm not going to read all the verses here, there's three more verses, but let me move on to the second option. And it's simply this. We need to have certain attitudes and actions that are directed towards God. So what is it we need to foster in our lives? If you know, you say, well, pastor, you're against these things. I'm going, no, God's against these things because it destroys us. He's telling us to live a restrained life. But now he's telling us, so what desires and passions do we need to replace the wrong ones? Because let me just tell you something. If you just try to resist these passions on your own, you're going fl- to fail every single time. How many go, that's true? How many have ever tried to resist something and you just go, didn't work? Anybody succumb to re- trying to resist the wrong thing? Come on, let's be honest. Every hand should kind of go up here, I think. You know, There's got to be a greater, there's got to be something inside of you that's greater than the pressure that's brought to bear on you. It's almost like those scuba, you know, those guys with the, the suits in the water. They drop down, they, you know, they shoot you know, oxygen into their suits or whatever it is, the gases into their suits, they drop in the bottom of the ocean. The reason those guys are not being crushed by the pressure is because there's pressure being pushed the other way. That's how they can handle the outside pressures. 
You and I will not be able to stand against the pressures coming against us in our society today if we don't have some pressure inside of us that's greater than the pressure outside of us. How many see that? That's what I'm talking about. This is where we're going right now. This is the good news. It all begins, first of all, with a teachable heart towards godly instruction. And I, you know, the fact that you're here listening, it tells me a good deal about you. You're saying, hey, I want to get what's the right way to handle this. He says here in verse 12, apply your heart to instruction and your ears to words of knowledge. Isn't that great? You know, I didn't put that one in. Okay. Where, so then I just say this. So then I ask the next question to myself, and then I'm asking it to you. Where am I investing my time and energy? Where are you investing your time and energy? Do you have the right goals in your life that are going to produce the right results? Who are you listening to? Isn't that a great thing? You know, some of us were so busy listening to mockers, scoffers, and all the nonsense that's going on around us. Listen to what Psalm 1-1 says. I love it. It's a wisdom psalm, folks. He says, blessed or happy is the person who does not walk and step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. In other words, we're not camped in that group, he says, but we're delighting in the law of the Lord and we meditate on his law day and night. And that person that does that will be like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither and whatever they do prospers. How many say, this sounds pretty good. I want to plant my little bottom next to that stream. I want to make sure I'm camped in the word of God. I want my mind to be renewed. I want God's will and his ways and his thoughts and his desires to permeate my heart. He goes, not so the wicked. They're like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment nor sinner in the assembly of righteous. For the Lord, the Lord watches over the way of righteous, the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. How many can see that our culture is in rebellion against God? This doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure this out. Can you see it? We have a society that's anti-God. It's anti-Christian. It's against God. I'm not against people, folks, nor is God. God's for people. As a matter of fact, we're not wrestling with flesh and blood. They're not the problem. The people aren't the problem. You say, yeah, but they're doing these things. No, it's the spirit behind the people. It's the attitude behind the people. It's the goals that are wrong that are behind the people. It's the words that are designed to seduce our souls. But here are the words of wisdom. What is God trying to say to us? Well, throughout Proverbs, we see that wisdom both has the words of a godly father or the words of woman wisdom, which in the Hebrew, chokmah, that's why wisdom is a woman. It's in the feminine uh, case. It says, listen to your father who gave you life and do not despise your mother when she's old. Whew, isn't that interesting? Why is it using these frame of reference? Because how many know that we say, hey, well, listen, when I'm out of this house, I'm gonna shake off all the restrictions mom and dad put on me. I'm gonna go do my own thing. Yeah, much to your own destruction. Listen to what he's saying here. If your mom and dad are godly people and they've been giving you words of wisdom and counsel, you don't want to despise those words. Listen to what he says in verse 23. Buy the truth, don't, don't sell it. Wisdom, instruction, and insight as well. The father or mother of a righteous child has great joy. A man who fathers a wise son rejoices in him. May your father and mother rejoice. May she uh, who gave you birth be joyful. Obviously, there are some assumptions being made here. First of all, these are godly persons who are rejoicing that their children are walking in righteousness. And then we need to commit to the right path. And we do that by giving ourselves to God's path and thereby avoiding terrible pitfalls. Listen, verse 26, my son, give me your heart. Let your eyes delight in my ways. 
And then he warns us, for an adulterous woman is a deep pit and a wayward life is a narrow well. Like a bandit, she lies in wait and multiplies the unfaithful among men. So what is he saying? You want to avoid certain things. You want to avoid certain elements in our lives. And I want you to think about our culture for a minute. What is it promoting today? Perversity and sex and, and addictive behavioral patterns. That's what is being promoted. Can you see it? It's very blatant, I think. Now, the problem with life is not desire itself. Every one of us should have desire. Every one of us should have passion. So how do I get the right passion? Let me go back here. I want to go back to verse 26, because I think verse 26 is the key to the whole thing. Went too far. Okay, what does it say there? What's the first part of it say? My son what? Give me your heart. Okay, let's, let's move away from just the, the, uh, the terminology, my son. It could be my son, my daughter. Okay, my son and my daughters. Who's talking now? Well, the father's talking to his child, but who's really talking here? God is. Okay, what is God saying to you and me? My son and my daughter do what? Give me your heart. What'll happen if you and I give God our hearts? He's going to change them. What's he going to do? He's going to give you a new heart. What's he going to do? He's going to put new desires inside of you. How many, you know, you know you're a Christian? I'll tell you how you know. All of a sudden, new desires come into your heart. You know, before you had no interest in certain things. All of a sudden, when I became a Christian, I had a desire to please God. Where did that come from? I had a desire to get to know God. I had a desire to get into his word. I had a desire to go to church. I had a desire to worship God. Where does that come from? Spirit of God, right desires. That's what we need to understand. So we're gonna stand here, and I believe this morning that God is calling us to have the right desires. Let's stand. He's calling us to have the right desires. Why? Because the right desires are gonna lead to the right kind of a life. The right desires are going to ultimately lead to satisfaction in our life. The right desires in our life are going to lead to the right destination. The right desires in our life are going to lead to the right associations. How many can see what I'm really doing is focusing in on the motivation, the wellspring of our soul? Can you see that? You know, why? You know, it's so funny. You know, people go, well, my kid's hanging with the wrong crowd. Why? Desire. Desire. How many here say, you know what, Pastor? I want to have the right desire. I want to have the desire that's going to lead to a successful life, a healthy life, a meaningful life, a rich life, you know, where I have healthy relationships, where it's not just about me. It's about others, too. Amen? Okay. I guess I'm saying this morning is we should just give our hearts to the Lord. We should just surrender to Him. And we should learn from this pathway that he's laid out before us. You know, restrain yourself from this. Give yourself to that. Restrain yourself from this. Give yourself to that. He's teaching us how to live. We can ignore this wise counsel. We can ignore wisdom's voice. And we can just say, I'll oh, forget. I'm going to do my own thing. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, right? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean to your own understanding. In all your ways, 
acknowledge the Lord. And he will make your way smooth. He will make your way straight. He will lead you in the right paths for his righteousness sake. I'm quoting Psalm 23. It's just amazing how this whole book comes together, the Bible. Isn't that amazing? All fits. How many here say, you know what? I'm a Christian already, but you know what today? I'm just renewing my heart to him. I'm just going to surrender my heart to him. I'm just going to give my heart to him. I want his passion and desires to flood my soul. And that'll actually direct your steps. If you're fully committed to God and you fully surrendered your heart to him, his desires are going to rage in your life. And then you can say like the Apostle Paul, he's telling the church, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both to will volitionally and to do his good pleasure. I'm going to lift my hands. How many are going to join me? I'm giving my heart to him. I'm giving my heart to him. I want the right heart cry. I want the right desires. So Lord, you see our hearts today. We are surrendering our hearts to you. We thank you for that. What an amazing God you are. I just pray right now, bless my brothers, my sisters, everyone that's now responding to you. As we surrender to your Lordship, Lord, you're going to give us the right desires that'll lead us to the right life, that will lead us to the right destination. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.